You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. So it's a real pleasure to, to get underway now with our, our guest today. Uh, Eric Strasser is um, a partner at More, at More David Al Ventures, and he leads, he created their clean tech practice, and he leads that practice for them. In addition to his work there, he's actually uh, been an advocate or an evangelist for clean tech investing across Silicon Valley and in the venture community in general. So it's a real pleasure. It's a very timely set of issues around clean tech investing. I don't know how many saw the New York Times Magazine piece this weekend uh, covering a lot of what's going on in this space as being you know, very exciting, a uh, whole new sector of the economy that's opening up. Um, Eric uh, is actually an alum of Stanford. Uh, thankfully. He uh, earned his PhD at Stanford as well as his master's, uh, did his undergraduate at Harvey Mudd College, um, but uh, probably more important than anything else, he was one of the founding uh, principles behind the Entrepreneurial Thought Leadership Series back in the day. We won't talk about years, but, um, but uh, he, he helped found this effort, and uh, it's a pleasure really almost like coming home for you, isn't it, to be here today. So, so let's dive right in and, and see what he has to say for himself. But uh, please help me welcome Eric to, uh, to ETL. Thank you. So, so maybe we could just start at a high level and, and maybe you could tell the students about your work in clean tech investing. Sure. Um, I've been at Moore David Al uh, a little over 10 years now. Uh, some days it feels like forever, uh, especially in, in today's environment sometimes. Um, back in 2002, in the kind of lower days of the decline of the tech boom, uh, I started thinking about what was going to be the next area in which technology could really shape uh, a new set of industries. And what I started to look and come across time and time again was that there was a transition that was about to happen. And the transition was probably going to be the most profound in my lifetime. And the transition, very simply, is the next 40% of people on this planet are going to achieve an American or... American middle-class standard of living in the next 25 or 50 years. And if you just did the kind of pencil math on that, if you took the 20th century and you took out the world wars and call that 75 years and call the six industrialized countries about 20% of people on the planet, you're going to do it. You're going to basically move them from where the next 40% of people from where they are today, low on a GDP curve, up to basically call it a 1970s or 1980s American standard of living. But you're going to try to do that in one-third the time. You're going to try to basically do it in the first half of this century. And when you think about what that means, the infrastructure that's required, the materials, the energy, all the products and services, the movement of materials around the planet, the movement of capital around the planet, I became to understand um, that this would be probably the driving force behind the rest of my career. And more importantly, or I should say in addition to that, the byproduct of all that activity would probably be you know, what we've come to understand as global warming because all these things need to move around and we need to move basic materials into products and products need to move around the world. And many of the 40% of people we're talking about industrializing don't have vehicles today. They don't have houses that embody a bunch of energy. They don't have vehicles today. They don't have the personal mobility that we enjoy here in America. And so that became the basis for 
exploring in 2003 inside our firm, really my taking an entrepreneurial role. At that time, we practiced life sciences and IT, and I said, I'd like to be an entrepreneur inside of our firm. And our firm has a long history. Uh, you know, Michael mentioned that we've been around 25 years. But I said, I'd like to go start exploring these clean tech areas and understanding where could technology in the classic sense of venture capital intersect these markets and what were the problems that technology specifically could solve. And what I started to do in 2003 and early 2004 is I started seeing entrepreneurs, um, entrepreneurs that were in our IT area before and entrepreneurs that were in the life science area. I, they started showing up at our doorstep, not looking for the next IT opportunity or the next biotech opportunity, but looking to either to learn more or showing up with a fledgling small entrepreneurial business saying, I'm going to start a, a solar company. I'm going to start a biofuels company. I'm going to address making coal clean. And really starting, we started to see the avalanche of the Valley's best talent in the 2004 timeframe start to move to these areas. Well, my job is to catalyze entrepreneurs, to provide them with the capital to help them realize their dreams. And in that context, it became apparent to us in the late 2004 timeframe that we should start investing in this area. And so I led a set of investments in the 2004, 2005, 2006 timeframe. Uh, we can talk about some of them later on if we get into it. Um, and what we've done is really staked out a leadership position in the clean tech investing area. Um, we've done about 15 investments to date um, across a variety of areas. And we've built um, an entire segment of our practice around it. So it's become something that we are committed to. It's not something we dabble in. My, uh, my livelihood is, is made or broken on whether we make clean tech work inside of our firm. We have two of our eight general partners practicing it today. And we do essentially what we do in our other uh, areas. We invest behind Stanford students and professors that are spinning out with interesting technology that they go over to OTL and get licensed. Uh, we are investing behind repeat entrepreneurs that are coming from another area. We are seeding corporate spin-outs of research that is inside a, a major corporation but is not consistent with where the, that corporation wants to go. And so that uh, intellectual property and some of those people are available to spin out. And we're trying to do it all in the context of a venture capital fund. Now since 2005, this has become a very interesting and exciting area for venture capital broadly. And I think if you looked over the last three years, what you'd find in 2005, some people were practicing clean tech. In 2006, it was um, many people. In 2007, it's most people. And I think today, as we leave 2008, I think the people that aren't practicing clean tech and venture is actually a fairly small number now. I mean, you can almost name them on your hand here in, in, in Sand Hill Road. And so in that context, we've, um, uh, we've been actively investing in this area across a, a number of companies. It's very exciting. It's where the best talent um, uh, sits for us to build entrepreneurial ventures. What are some of the investments you guys have made that you feel particularly excited about? I think the one that's probably farthest along is nanosolar. Mm -hmm. And the reason, one of the reasons I bring that up is it has a lot of Stanford students in it, mm -hmm. and it has a lot of Stanford intellectual property in it. The basic premise behind the company, um, as, as well as the, the founder, is a, is a Stanford uh, PhD grad. Uh, he and Larry and Sergey and I all went to graduate school at about the same time. Um, the premise of the, of the company is solar is just too expensive. And if we found a way to make photovoltaic cells the same way that 
the nightly newspaper is printed. Think about the New York Times and the machine that generates the New York Times every day um, by the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of copies in one day. Um, how can we bring those printing technologies to the photovoltaics business, which to date has been bootstrapped off of the semiconductor business? So in semiconductors, you make money by making things increasingly smaller and packing more value into it. In solar, you're trying to create square kilometers of things per minute. And so the collision of those economic forces really was forcing the silicon technologies not to be able to be um, effective as a photovoltaic technology. So the idea was basically, can we move the economics of photovoltaics to the economics of printing? And uh, today the company uh, is you know, effectively in production here in South San Jose. There must be 50 to 75 Stanford people inside the company at this point. Um, and, uh, and going quite well, I might say. It's, a, it's actually an a interesting one to work with. Now, when you were looking at, uh, at NanoSolar as a, as a business plan or as a PowerPoint presentation, probably with a small prototype or something mm -hmm. like it, how did you evaluate the opportunity given that the, the, the solar business is not exactly, it's neither high growth today nor is it profitable? How did you evaluate the opportunity? Yeah, so, um, and, and we looked at the opportunity in late 2004. Okay. And what you saw, I think you had to have a, a couple um, observations. One, the photovoltaic market was not a domestic market. The market is driven at that time and still is today out of Japan and Germany. Oh. And so you had to know that in order to find the opportunity interesting at all. Because you, you would have walked in and said, well, come on, this isn't a domestic market. Where are we going to sell this? No one wants it, blah, blah, blah. <coughs> the second thing I think you had to understand is the market was at that time about $2 billion in product sales, but on an over 40% growth rate. So. 40% of 2 billion, there's another billion, and you just kind of keep compounding the 40% along, and you realize, whoa, this is going to be, there's lots of product being sold into this business. And as price comes down, the amount grows very inelastically, meaning a small price drop causes a dramatic increase in, in desired volume. Um, so we worked on the market thesis um, and actually had that pretty well cooked before the company, we met the company. So we were actively looking for this, and I think that's one of the the, the thesis areas uh, here in cleantech. The opportunity specifically was, do you want to work with this entrepreneur? And do you think this is the technology and the manufacturing strategy that can get it done? And so the, the manufacturing strategy is around creating a nanoparticulate ink, that's where the nano comes from, and using printing technology to create solar cells, that's where the solar comes from. The entrepreneur is actually a really interesting character. character. Martin Roshisen was one of the founders of Trading Dynamics, which sold to Ariba very early on, and was also one of the founders and CEO of eGroups, which sold to Yahoo and is effectively today Yahoo Groups. Um, so you had a repeat entrepreneur, but the entrepreneur was not experienced in this industry. So the, the risk was, can this entrepreneur learn a new area? But the entrepreneur had already demonstrated the ability to build great management teams, access capital, do a bunch of the things that are requisite in order to put a, put a startup together. And how did you decide how much to capitalize the business with? I mean, it's, it's obviously something that you could scale up pretty rapidly mm -hmm. um, or, or start small with a seed, seed kind of investment. How did you guys approach that problem? You know, I think that's one of the challenges here in, in the clean tech segment is understanding the amount of capital it takes and managing the businesses in a way so that you put enough money to get the next milestone done. And most of the time when we invest, the next milestone is a technical milestone. Mm -hmm. And so it really came As down to, to a market milestone, yeah, or a certain level of sales, get or, to ten million dollars in sales, yeah. or you know get the product released, for example. Um, and 
it really comes down to sitting down with the company and going through its operating plan and understanding how many people months and how much innovation is required and how much can we plan on innovation happening on Tuesday versus Wednesday. <laughs> um, and, and really understanding from a bottoms up, how do you put the company together? And I think that's one of the real skills uh, you need to have in, in our profession is understanding how do you, from a bottoms up perspective, put capital and people and a plan together to make it work. And if, if it, fair to say, I think that, that uh, clean, tech, clean tech concepts generally take significantly more capital to get to market than, say, a software or an internet-driven business. Fair to say? Yeah, I think in general uh, that's going to be true. <coughs> I think if you look at them in the context of the Valley back in 1980, let's say, the early 80s, most of the semiconductor companies at that time had captive manufacturing. And most of them had a proprietary process technology that allowed them to make some special computer widget. Could have been a chip, could have been a uh, computer board. And then as the industry matured, other industries were grown that um, disaggregated all of that, um, that capital intensity. So we had foundries, then we had contract manufacturers, so that basically startups could focus on design, uh, sales, and marketing. And there were other people to take that capital intensity. Not sure whether that'll happen here. I think the capital intensity that we deal with comes in two forms. One is, does the company need to build proprietary manufacturing? Oh. And the second one is, is the nature of the technology such that the, the rational uh, format for the, pro for the technology as a project, right? i.e., we're going to build a coal gasification plant, i.e., we're going to build a solar utility plant. Um, if that's the case, then it might require a significant amount of capital. And the question is, how much can we get the technology um, proven before that capital will participate. So the question of capital comes down at the end to whose capital. Gotcha. Because Sandhill Road and the venture community is going to run out of capital at a certain point, and we need to have the companies far enough along so that other forms of capital will come in and help us build them. And where do you see those, those sort of later stage sources of capital? Are they as excited about this as the Sandhill Road community seems to be? Well, they might have been until last week or the week before. Um, uh, did something <laughs> well, I, for those of you that will watch this later, uh, you know, the, the company, and I think you know, more representatively, the world is in a serious uh, financial crisis. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a credit crisis. And most of the monies that are used to build out the project bases of, of these companies and many of the investors that would participate in the late clean tech rounds are also the same kind of investors that are private equity firms, hedge funds, investment banks, some of the people that are in uh, significant financial straits today. So I think it's unclear on a going forward basis how much, if any, pullback there will be. I suspect there will be some. Like most things, nothing's as bad as it is when you hear the worst news and it's not as great as it was when you heard the best news. Okay. Um, so do you take any special, and I don't, you know, if, if, I don't mean to say on a specific company share anything proprietary, but mm -hmm. you know, as you look at your portfolio, are you doing anything to respond to the current conditions that maybe, say, extend the runway um, for the venture money that they do have? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, whether you're a you know, single person, a small family, a small business, venture-backed startup, or a large corporation, there's a giant pullback sound you hear today. Um, I was speaking with a former um, CEO of a, of a large automotive company who said, you know, people with 700 credit score, which is a high credit score, there's a 50% chance you won't get financing if you try to go buy a car today. That's a phenomenal thing to say, that, that the credit is just not available in a whole bunch of different dimensions. And so what it tells us 
as basically managers of about a hundred startup you know portfolio is this incumbent upon us to, to reach out to our CEOs and tell them you know the cost of capital is changing we need to be thoughtful about what resources we're adding we need to be thoughtful about what, what equipment we're buying and we need to make sure we increase the likelihood with as much cash as possible of hitting our milestones I don't think we're about to see something that we saw in part of 2002 where more or less the startup market just dried up. Mm -hmm. That's the only time in my career in 11 years in the venture business where I've seen actually good companies die. Mm -hmm. And that was a really difficult time because you know, capital was just not available in any form. I think we're, it's going to be tougher for good companies, but I think good companies are still going to get financed. How did you get to the point where you cared a lot about something as um, macro as the explosion of middle-class lifestyles on the planet Earth. I mean, that's not exactly like something that occurred to me, you know, when I was deciding what to do with my life. What, what, what is it about your background or your personal passions that got you to stop and, and care about that, that problem? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I try to be a student of the game. When I was a, a student here, I wanted to really learn about the different students I was interacting with. I had friends that were in the medical school. I had friends that were in law school. I had friends uh, in the business school. And one of the things I um, uh, came to understand in learning about the history of Silicon Valley is that the valley is built on a set of successive waves. And one of the waves was the PC wave. So one of my core messages for the group, we'll probably get to it a little bit later, um, is if you did nothing, I know most of you are here for master's programs, there might be some undergraduates in the audience also. As you're thinking about what you want to do when you leave this room, the number one thing I would advise you that would be smart to do is to figure out how to find a long wave, some immutable trend that is going to permeate most of the tenure of your career, the next 15 to 30 years. If you sat down and said, what are the big long waves that are going to happen during my lifetime? Jumping on one of them as a professional will probably be one of the smartest moves you ever do. Because if you did nothing but jump into the computer business in the late 70s, early 80s, even maybe all the way up to the Microsoft IPO, you had a phenomenal run. A phenomenal run. 20-something years, maybe 25 years where you had a very high chance, much higher chance than the average person of achieving a higher position, perhaps more material uh, income, and just being in a, uh, a better place than if you'd chosen, for example, Detroit. And so I think, you know, you gotta think about what wave you're on and how do you get on the wave that makes sense for you, both from an interest perspective, a geography perspective, what you wanna do with your life, I decided that this was going to be a very long wave. This would probably be the most impactful wave. You can imagine what the other ones are. It's easiest to see them right here on campus because if you go read the last, I read the, just this last week, the last statement that comes out from uh, Dean Plummer from the School of Engineering, he tells you what the school's focused on. The school is focused in three big areas. Information technology, which it has been for a long time, that's kind of the, the most mature of the three areas it's really pursuing. Bioengineering and moving biology to a quantitative science and energy and the environment. Those are the three thrusts inside the School of Engineering right now. Guess what? Five to ten years from now, those are the students and professors and technologies that spin out and do startups. Why is the school oriented there? 
because those are where the big challenges are. That's where they can recruit faculty to. That's where they can find research grants from. And so what you're seeing, research universities are the start of the waves. Right? So you're here at ground zero on it. You just have to look around and see what they are and understand what research is going on on campus. So I don't know whether you know, clean tech's the, the one for you, but I would tell you the number one thing you can do is figure out what wave are you riding and make sure you're not on a wave that's going down. Let's assume that the, the, some students, at least a few in the audience, would feel that uh, clean tech is a long wave they want to ride. You talked before about your thesis-based investing, that you've got some, some, some beliefs about what, where mm -hmm. the best places are to invest. Can you share some of those with the students so they can narrow it down a bit? Because I think there's a real, there's some fundamental forks in the road for the students when they think about the difference mm -hmm. between something like nano solar or a company like Amaris, which was mm -hmm. a guest in this class last mm -hmm. year, uh, which for those that don't know, uh, is using synthetic biology to uh, convince yeast cells in, uh, to eat sugar and um, excrete diesel fuel, um, which actually works when you put it into a, a diesel engine. Uh, those are very different paths on the clean tech kind of um, uh, uh, wave. How, how should the students think about the various alternatives uh, within that, that long wave? Sure. So. I think there's a couple macro trends inside of it. The easiest way to, to deconstruct this is to think about the, the specific problem you're solving. So today we use far too much carbon in a variety of areas. So in general, low carbon solutions are going to be preferred over high carbon solutions going forward. Most leaders in the world today and most captains of industry believe by 2012 we're going to have per ton of CO2 emission taxes. They could be cap and trade. There's a whole bunch of market mechanisms. We could go live all day in the economic school and try to figure this out. The reality being is that carbon is going to become the third currency on this planet. There's the cost of capital. There's the co you know, cost of a barrel of oil. And the next one's going to be cost of a ton of CO2. And technologies that are going to allow the world's big industries to move to lower carbon solutions are going to be attractive ones. Those are going to be places where Tons of existing investment are going to need to be sloshed over into new solutions. And careers are made when typewriters are left in the dust and people buy computers. And then they put one on that, that desk and then that other desk and this one. And that takes a very long time. And when you move something as gigantic as the energy infrastructure on this planet through these new technologies, it is going to be a very long way because the average lifespan of a power plant is about 50 years. And so you've got 50 years of replacement just to replace what's there today. The second one I would say relates to um, the relative advantage of different countries. So we are oil poor, we are coal rich. So solutions that are going to carry the day in America are going to be solutions that help our low oil position, i.e. agriculture-based renewables, for transportation fuel, of which Amherst is one of a variety of companies pursuing that, um, or things that allow us to consume the resource we already have, i.e. coal, in a smart and thoughtful way such that we don't add to a high carbon problem. And so I think if you, that's the second one. The third one is um, we need to be more energy efficient. We consume far too much. Another way to think about my thesis of the middle class is how many more Americans are we generating on this planet? If you think of it Amer about the average American as a consumption unit, you know, there's you know, X many hundred million Americans, 
Well, every year we're adding a couple hundred million more because there's more Americans from a consumption perspective being generated. And so how do we reduce that overall average um, such that we're more energy efficient, resource efficient? Why do we sling plastic, you know, uh, plastic bottles of water all over the planet? It's kind of a silly thing to think about. Sorry. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, there's a variety of things that we do um, that you would not do. <laughs> that you would not do if you were starting today. You just would not do them. They don't make sense. So I think it's about figuring out what problem, what's the, the high-level problem that's being solved, and then finding the solutions that sit within those. Those will be the specific companies and industries that get created. When you uh, first started caring about this sector, and, 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 and even today, how do you keep up with the current state of research? What do you read? What do you look at? Who do you talk to to stay up to date on what's, what's happening? This is a big challenge. Um, basically, uh, the cha one of the challenges to being an investor in clean tech is knowing what you want to invest in. Mm. If you're an early stage investor like us, you need to know what you're looking for because you can't sit there and wait till things come in your door. Um, if you do, you're going to be purely reactive and you'll always be behind the curve. Um, so I would argue if you looked at the better venture capitalists, what you'll find is most of them are thesis driven. They have some point of view. They're able to articulate it. They're able to attract the right entrepreneurs um, through their description and marketing of that message. And the challenge is to stay relevant in the places where research can be uh, harnessed and extracted. You know, there's a common perception, and if you read Tom Friedman's work, you'll, you'll see one of his favorite metaphors is the world is flat. Actually, in innovation, it's exactly the opposite. The most interesting research in this world happens basically on 10 to 12 campuses, and this is one of them. It's not uniformly spread over the United States. It's just not true. It may be true for shipping goods around the, around the planet, but it's certainly not true for extracting innovation and making innovation happen. And so the challenge for cleantech um, investors, I think, is mining those areas where that research is happening. Who are the top three professors at Stanford or at MIT or Caltech or Cal, Georgia Tech, CMU? that are doing the specific areas that match up with one of your thesis areas we talked about earlier. And that's, I think, the way you can better hone uh, and find out what's going on with, with different research veins. What are the other long waves that you pay attention to? Obviously, you know, you're not solely spending 24 by 7 in just, these, just the clean tech area. I think one of the advantages of having a diversified venture firm uh, where we practice across information technology, life science, and and clean tech is we're able to harness the intersections of those. So if you think about biofuels or, or bioengineering, um, that has applications in clean tech, but it's also <coughs> has applications in life sciences. And so where appropriate, we uh, interact. Solar looks a lot like semiconductors, early semiconductors. So lessons and competency in semiconductors often bleeds over into, uh, into the solar and manufacturing aspects of, uh, of photovoltaics. The other long wave, I think, that, that we have here before us is, along with making hundreds of millions of more middle-class consumers, we basically have, uh, we've basically set ourselves up to have a set of lifestyle diseases. And I think if you look around and you look at the amount of obesity um, and the amount of lifestyle problems that people have, um, one of the most interesting things I did a couple of years ago, um, I came down here to campus and I looked at some of the newspapers 
that were at the turn of the last century. And one of the big concerns about 100 years ago is we were not going to be able to feed people on this planet. There simply was not enough high-quality farmland to produce crops and therefore food for all the people that lived in the cities. And so we were going to face significant problems coming into the 20th century. Well, with the advent of fertilizer, that problem just went away. Technology came to the rescue and solved the problem. It solved it so profoundly that we now have a global obesity epidemic. I mean, it crushed that problem, right? You know, the same way that 25 years of venture investment crushed all of the telecom and networking problems. Not all of them, but I mean, the amount of bandwidth you get sitting here in this room compared to even when I was sitting in this chair 14 years ago is tremendous, right? And the fact that it's free is kind of you know insulting. Somebody's got to make money somewhere, right? Um, <laughs> the challenge, I think, for us is to better um, manage lifestyle conditions and to better understand how our bodies work as a quantitative science. And today we're at the very earliest of stages. We still don't know why we give cancer treatment A or B to a person. We still don't understand some of the basic mechanisms of how our bodies work. And because of that, we do things that in retrospect from today just look silly. I mean, I think, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, about 30% of cancer treatments don't work and they don't find out that they would not have worked until the cancer becomes more developed. That's because there's no diagnostics today to tell the doctor whether they should give you treatment A or treatment B. So they kind of make a, they, they basically make an educated guess, but in the meantime your cancer is developed two or three months farther. That's just a lack of technology that can't tell the doctor or provide any diagnostic at the molecular level about who you are specifically separate from the person that's sitting next to you. And because of that, we apply these very broad brushes in medicine today that make no sense if you actually understood people's genetic makeup. And so if you look at a lot of what's happening here on campus and happening at some of the best research universities, it's how do we take biology, which if you think about your biology courses, we're always kind of separate from the rest of your engineering and kind of hardcore sciences because it was much more of a, a, a liberal art as a, as, a, as, a, as a scientific area. There was a lot to be learned, and it was basically... You know, you memorization, here's how we think it works. And you think about your hard sciences, we're much more experimental driven. Because there's actually, the laws of physics are understood, the laws of chemistry for the most part are understood. Inorganic chemistry is a fairly well-defined field. Biology is very much not. And so I think the other long way that sits right before you is, how are we going to deal with and provide solutions for basically our lifestyle diseases, which are going to dominate, I think, the next 20 to 50 years, because think about it, 150 years ago, people didn't have Subway and Quiznos and everything sitting right outside their door, right? I mean, people actually had to work to find, uh, you know, food. Today, it's just everywhere around you. Calories are just taken for granted. And I think figuring out how to fix that and better manage that will be a huge business. In, in several of the long waves you're mentioning, not just clean tech, but also health and, and uh, uh, healthcare and, 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 and biotech, uh, there's a big public policy component that I'd love to get your thought. I mean, we don't know yet who's going to be president, but what advice would you have for either candidate uh, with respect to public policy that needs to, to support the kind of growth that you're talking about? Yeah, I think it's a great point, and, and I think more so today than ever before, venture is more policy um, influence than it has been. There's kind of two two sides of it. One is, I think for the first time with the passage of the 
of the significant legislation that came through uh, on Monday, I believe, um, we now have, at least in, in solar and a couple other of the renewable areas, for the first time ever, um, policy that has a time horizon of eight years, which gives enough of a signal to Silicon Valley and to research universities and to entrepreneurs that you can orient this way and you can practice your business knowing what the business environment and framework will be around it versus historically in renewables here in the United States, we've had an incentive one year, then we turn it off. Then we turn it on, then we turn it off. Then a new center comes in, we turn it back on. And it, the message to businesses, we don't know what we're doing, so don't trust anything here, right? I mean, this is all just, this is not a, a serious issue, and we just waffle back and forth. I think now with the, the current passage of the um, extension of the investment tax credit and others, I think for the first time you're starting to see people be serious about these areas as a growth business um, and also for uh, securing jobs and manufacturing capacity in the United States. The, the second part of it is to realize that most of these industries are not dominated by the United States. And so I think more so in clean tech than in our other practice areas, the markets for these companies are not domestic. The biggest markets are international. And the question is how do you service those markets from Palo Alto or Houston or New York City, that's a challenge that um, other areas around the world that have startups have dealt with more so than Silicon Valley. But I think we're learning how to do it. Policy is an increasing part of the landscape and one that the Valley, I think, is learning how to do. Now, one uh, maybe radical perspective on policy uh, might say that um, one of the biggest problems we face in the United States is that gas isn't expensive enough. Right. Um, and that it would it would be somewhere around ten to twelve dollars a gallon before people would consumer markets would actually be willing to make the conversions necessary in their consumption patterns to really make a difference. Mm -hmm. Is is anything like that required here, or do you see that the natural tendency of consumers will gravitate them towards these greener these greener technologies just by good conscience? You know, I think there's two points of view. I think if you look at Europeans broadly speaking, their nature is to try to get government to do the right thing and be very prescriptive. And the nature of most American business is those guys are messed up in Washington and I just need stability, whatever it is, and I'll figure out how to work around it. And it's a very different point of view. Uh -huh. um, and I think you're going to see both of them practice. And I think certain states may lead over the federal government uh, in these areas. The, whether they're strong supporters or not will just shift the relative market share of these technologies around. I don't think it'll um, dramatically affect the market sizes. I think we should expect the federal government to be last because they typically are in these areas. California um, and some other states tend to lead uh, and then policy gets adopted at the national level uh, later on. Um, before I turn the floor over to um, Shruti, who has our first question today, um, uh, I want to just ask, you were one of the founding principals behind the creation of this class. Uh, what year was that? 1996. 96. Tell the students why you started or wh how this came to be. Oh, sure. Um, so back in 1995, uh, the guys in Yahoo, Jerry and David, were a couple trailers away from me down here next to the CIS building. And what I came to realize was many of the people uh, that were graduate students at that time were just disappearing, meaning they'd go to their research group meeting and they would be gone. And they were being sucked up into many of the big 
IT technology companies that you know today. You see them when you drive on up and down 101, Cisco, Oracle, a whole bunch of other places. And the tech boom was really taking off. And myself and a couple other people on campus basically decided, I don't know whether this was the economically better decision or not, but we decided at the time that we weren't going to give up our PhD programs and we were going to start basically orchestrating student entrepreneurship here on campus. That basically became the basis organization. One of the programs that we were running was kind of startup CEO come in and talk for an afternoon and we'll provide some pizza and some soft drinks and wouldn't that be great? Well, because the early instantiations of that were not regular, meaning like every week at a certain time, it was really hard to build audience. So one of the things we decided to do with the help of Tom Kosnick and Tom Byers, and Tom Byers was just recently, uh, recently on campus, um, is we decided to basically integrate that into a class so we could have a, partially a captive audience, um, be able to upgrade, the, to be brutally honest, be able to upgrade the, uh, the speakers by being able to uh, you know, market a larger audience to them. And the thing took off like wildfire. And so it became a class, I believe, in 1996 um, as one unit like it is today. Uh, no, obviously, over the internet, you know, watch it on a flash player. That didn't exist. <laughs> so you actually had to show up, or you could be at a Fortune 500 that's a, a subscriber to the Stanford Professional Development um, Organization. I think they sent you a VHS tape, just to let you know uh, how, how dinosaurish that was. Um, Do you know what that is? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Box-looking things. Um, and, uh, uh, and it took off like wildfire. And we would fill Termin Auditorium with about, uh, whatever it is, 400 people. And there was basically no one during that time we couldn't get to campus. And the pitch was very simple. I did many of the, uh, much of the recruiting for some of the speakers, and my pitch was really simple. There's 500 people going to be in this auditorium, about a third of them from the Stanford Business School, about two-thirds from the School of Engineering, a smattering of people from law and life, and law and, uh, the medical school and others, and they're either going to work for you or they're going to be your competitors. Do you want to show up? The answer to that question almost always was, I got to come. And it was very effective selling tool. <laughs> and it, it worked phenomenally. And, uh, and so ETL was kind of you know, born out of that. Excellent. Are you ready? Sruti came to me before class began and asked if she could please have the... No, I'm teasing. I cold called her, but I did it at the beginning of class, so she's ready now. Um, Basically, you know, you're, you're, you're driving at the moral fiber of partnerships. And so partnerships come in every flavor. Um, some of them are command and control, meaning I decide and you do. And some of them are much more flat. Ours tends to be on the flat side. If you looked at our discussions when companies come in on Monday for us to make investment decisions, there's a document that gets made by the advocate, the person supporting the investment. Um, and then the other people from that investment team basically are able to add their opinions into that document so that the rest of my partners think about my partners from life science or information technology. They get to read something that, that looks somewhat like our Supreme Court kind of brief where the, the leading opinion is being you know, said, but there's the dissenting posi positions are in there. I think the company can do this. Well, we're not quite sure. I think this is a bigger risk than Eric thinks it is. And so that document then provides a basis for discussion. 
At the end of it, we basically decide whether we think the risks are manageable. And there's some risks that we control and some ones we don't. Things we control, how much money gets spent, how much money goes into the company, whether we want to invest or not. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> do we like this management team? Who needs to be added in what order? And can we influence it? Things we don't control are whether the market develops, if it's a, it's a new market, not so much an issue in clean tech, but a huge issue in information technology. Um, people walk in on a Monday and it's uh, someone, you know, 23 years old and says, you've got to take a look at this technology because in two years, 100 million people are going to be doing this on their mobile phone. Uh, your, ideas, your opinion on that is as good as the next guy's. So then it comes down to a whole bunch of, you know, how do you manage the risk and the, and the capital intensity and what gives you the conviction around doing something. I think it, in partnerships, uh, understanding how to work the, um, uh, work the risk and be able to be transparent is, is, is really difficult. Your question is a very good one. Yes. How do you think about the trade-off between possibly mutually exclusive solutions like, say, electric cars and battery technology versus biofuels, mm -hmm. especially given that these are really big bets and you make them over really long-term horizons? Yeah, I, that's an excellent question. Um, there's two answers. There's two answers. You can either come bottoms up or tops down. Uh, the top-down answer is uh, it's unlikely that any one technology dominates all applications. I think it's a lot easier to see how someone that lives in downtown San Francisco that drives from the marina to the financial district, for example, could do that on an electric vehicle. The person who drives an interstate truck you know, through the Mojave Desert or the person that drives a tractor, both of those vehicles have four wheels and an internal combustion engine today. But I think what ends up happening is the technology becomes very application specific. And so the question is, does the, does the investment you're making have a large enough market in the time frame of interest, in the time frame of you being an adventure investor in it, such that it's reasonable that you could get the rate of return that you, that you need? I think at some point, you know, if battery technology was perfect, you, know, you could imagine that dominating a big chunk of the miles driven, total miles driven. Um, I think you're going to end up in applications, though, where you're going to have a transportation tool for a very long period of time. The average U.S. car is on the... Um, is on the road, meaning registered uh, to drive, about 11 or 12 years. So even if you had the perfect battery technology today and all the great infrastructure to do it, it would take you approximately 11 years to turn over the vehicle fleet. So you end up in these things where I think there's going to be a number of solutions in this, in this medium period. And the question is, is the steady state solution a hybrid or is the steady state solution complete electrification. And I think technology is going to, technology and marketing are going to be the, 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 the battleground there. Not always the best technology wins. Sometimes the best marketing wins. In the back. Do you think you could comment on um, what you've observed in clean coal? Sure. His question was, um, could I comment on what we've seen in clean coal? Um, there's a, a variety of ways to approach the problem. Um, one is you can figure out how to upgrade the coal before it's combusted. You know, coal is basically our most fundamental energy technology. A little bit over 50% of all the electricity produced in the country is, comes from coal. What we do is very simple. We dig it up like a birthday cake, 
stick it in a boiler, burn it, make steam, and use the steam to generate electricity. That's the entire degree of sophistication. Not particularly sophisticated. Um, huge amount of, of CO2 and other things come up at it with coal. Mercury, sulfur, a whole bunch of things that are not good for the environment. Um, you could either upgrade the coal before it is combusted. You could figure out um, how to clean the coal after it's burned, basically some type of exhaust or emissions cleanup technology. You could figure out how to use the coal um, closer to where it is so that the effects of it remain in situ, i.e. you don't drag the coal on a rail car across the country to use it. Um, and I think the last one is you figure out how to sequester uh, the bad stuff. And you can use CO2 and some of the byproducts of coal for enhanced oil recovery. So enhanced oil recovery is just pumping CO2 into the ground to try to get the next barrel of oil to come out of an oil field. Um, that's actually a very attractive thing to do when oil prices are this high. So there's actually a shortage, if you could believe it, of CO2, pipeline CO2 um, today in America. If you had some, we would all be uh, uh, on our way to being very happy. Um, I think the long-term goal is to figure out how do you take the byproducts of coal and turn them into other economically valuable products. So things you could make that have very large markets that you could make with the output of CO2, you could make other fuels, i.e. carbon and oxygen are the building blocks along with hydrogen to make any fossil fuel or any plastic. So if you could have use CO2 as a feedstock to start to build something else. I mean, the problem is that when you think about how much coal we consume, you know, you start to run out of markets that could absorb the amount of CO2 that's produced. So some of the things you could make, and there's companies that are doing this today, you could make building materials out of it. You could make fuels, transportation fuels out of it. Um, you could make some very broad-based plastics and chemical precursors out of it. But after that, you start to run out. I did a calculation once. It was something like some small fraction of the U.S. coal fleet would generate the entire amount of antifreeze. I think every car drives around with a couple gallons of antifreeze in it. The entire supply of antifreeze in like four hours. So you have to find something that's a really, really big market. Um, and you end up in building materials and fuels and kind of basic chemicals. If you could find a way to close the loop on CO2 there, then I think you'd have a way to more responsibly burn coal. You need to find somewhere to put the carbon dioxide. Yes. Um, I've read some press uh, in the past year that um, some high-profile people have said that uh, in clean tech, it's one way I think clean tech I'm saying specifically energy, mm -hmm. a lot of the major innovations are going to come from established companies, say like uh, General Electric, uh, a even a Chevron or something like that. What's your um, take on that or what's your perspective on that outlook? Biased. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, if you look at where innovation stems from today, if we were to rewind 30 years, you had places like Xerox Park that were spitting out some of the foundational IT technologies. You had the Bell Labs. You had a variety of corporate research universities that were funded in an era where Wall Street wasn't so focused on companies quarter to quarter operating profit. And this R&D was viewed as a beneficial thing that was feeding the product pipeline. Somewhere in the last 20 years, that got lost. And so large corporations shed those entities. Um, there is still significant R&D that goes on in corporations, but it's by far lower than what they do themselves. 
example of that is look at who funded the $500 million grant for the Berkeley uh, Energy Bioconversion Institute. It's BP. They could have done the $500 million in-house. They're not short on change these days. Um, look who funds the GSEP project here at Stanford. It's Toyota. It's Chevron. It's a variety of others. Honda. These are people that are looking for innovation, and they know they can't keep the nation's best and brightest on their balance sheet. And so universities are really the place that have inherited most of the R&D um, in America these days. may not be true around the world, but certainly here in America that's the case. And the world's not flat. The top 10 research universities produce a dominant share of things that go on to be breakthrough technology. And so it really becomes an issue of how do you catalyze that technology out of here? I think when you get to the scale of some things that are in energy and materials, um, the company that you may know that, that commercializes that may be a very large company. But there may have been a startup that got acquired along the way or a startup that really is the deliverer of that core technology. And the branding and the marketing and the public face of it may be a very large company. Wind was that way, for example. Now most people think of wind, they think GE. Well, GE bought their way into the wind business. They didn't just conjure it up uh, you know, internally. And so startups, whether they're standalone companies like some of which you know, or they're acquired through M&A, are, are, I think, pretty fundamental to the innovation engine of America. Yes, sir. Um, you mentioned this a little bit about the uh, political <coughs> the policy system type startups. Um, let's say if you're an entrepreneur that's interested in going into dealing something to do with carbon and carbon costs and all that stuff. Right now, there's no policy that says it's going to go carbon tax or it's going to go carbon cap and trade. How do you remain agile in like a really politically sensitive type topic? And if you want to be an entrepreneur in that type of, how do you remain agile um, such that you can grow or at least prepare yourself? So I Did everybody hear that question? In, in, in light of the uncertainty around what's going to happen with, and I'm going to paraphrase, uh, with, with respect to carbon reduction, whether that might be a tax-based uh, regime or a cap-and-trade marketplace-driven regime, how do you as an entrepreneur remain flexible and preserve your options for growing a new business in such an uncertain environment? Um, I think that's a great question. The, the thing I would think about is... Like in most areas in clean tech, the United States is a laggard. Really hard for people that grew up on this, on these shores to understand, but we are in many areas a laggard. Asia and Europe are far ahead of us in this. And so I would look for the places where this is being practiced today and the relative merits and market share of those mechanisms. The United States will likely, I think if it's going to be a good citizen, I think the next regime, next administration will be a better corporate global citizen than, than this current one. And in that regard, I think it will adopt market mechanisms that appear to be working elsewhere. And so I would look for what's the dominant market mechanism in Europe and Asia. Yes, sir. I was told one of these solar technologies being worked on is panels that are painted onto your car or painted onto the ceiling of a building. I, I don't know if you know anything about that. Solar panels that, Solar are, panels paint, that are painted Yeah, that would take us to the Ray Bradbury moment of this talk. Um, uh, you know, I think there's actually work being done 
to look at technologies like that. I think they're relatively still far off. Um, there's a professor down at Caltech that is working on manufacturing techniques you could use that while the paint is drying, you could use electric fields or magnetic fields to orient um, the particles and be able to create uh, vias and bus bars to get power out. But um, to date, I don't know of any material you can really paint on and, and, and pull power out of. I think it's a, a, a research area for the future. Yes, sir. Um, you mentioned solar nano before. I was just wondering, um, what do you see uh, as the, what do you see are the advantages of that compared to solar thermal, which is mm -hmm. sort of mature? Mm -hmm. So our basic premise uh, for picking photovoltaic solar, solar over solar thermal is that um, semiconductors have a much better chance of significant cost reduction than the components that are solar thermal. Solar thermal's primary constituents are cement steel, aluminum, and glass, which are the world's most basic materials. They're a lot likely, if you believe the, we're building other middle classes around the world, they're not likely to be the materials that are going to be getting cheaper. Um, the big advantage of solar thermal is the fact that it's probably doable today. It hasn't been done at, at the scale points that people are envisioning it. Um, but the big advantage is that you have storage as part of the solution. So the problem with wind or photovoltaics is it only works when that resource is around, i.e. the sun or the, or the wind blowing. Um, the idea with solar thermals is to be able to store 24 hours worth of energy and be able to draw upon it when you want. So you're really using solar thermal to charge some reservoir of, of heat, and then you draw the heat whenever you need it. And I think that's an attractive thing for utilities, and I think it has its place in the energy landscape. Our personal investing practice was just that, you know, we think photovoltaics looks a lot more like something that could be on Moore's Law, and there's going to be a lot more cost reduction potential in that technology. Yes? Could you speak a little bit about nuclear energy and how this fits in with green tech? Nuclear sure. energy, how does it fit in? Uh, you know, it's the kind of thing that either gets included in the discussion or it doesn't, depending on the audience, um, to be perfectly honest, because it has attributes of being a clean technology. The real challenge here in America is we, it's not that people don't like nuclear energy, it's that we do not have an effective mechanism to dispose of nuclear waste. And so the issue is actually a waste issue, not a power issue. Um, the challenge, I think, um, is overcoming public perception and the time it takes to actually make it operational. So if you and I wanted to go start a nuclear power plant, it'd take us about 10 to 12 years from today before we generated the first kilowatt electricity. And because of that, it has a longer time horizon. It should be probably something that's feathered in all the time, meaning you should probably be building capacity all the time, in my opinion. Um, but it's not something you can dial up or dial down quickly like a coal, coal plants or natural gas plants. So it's something you have to kind of have a long-term perspective on. The reality is, I think, uh, a big chunk of the future generation is going to have to be nuclear because we're facing resource constraints in a bunch of other fossil fuels. Um, you know, in order to power China, there's some ridiculous statistic, like you have to turn on a power plant, uh, and you know, they do a lot of coal, but you have to turn on a nuclear power plant like once every two weeks or something uh, to keep powering that country. And it's like, okay, with a 10-year backlog, I mean, we're already like 900, 900 plants uh, in, the, you know, in the red there. Um, it is, uh, it is the base load technology that makes the most sense. Base load meaning the, the power that runs all the time. 
So I want to thank you. This has been terrific. Uh, Eric's been kind enough to stick, say he'd stick around for a few minutes if there were some questions from you guys that you didn't get a chance to answer. I, I had uh, uh, I just wanted to say two things. Sorry. Um, the hovering makes me nervous. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, so a couple things that you said uh, uh, are things that are sticking with me in a big way. One is that this idea of innovation being very lumpy, that it's not a smooth distribution, that there's places where it clumps together, and this being one of them I think is a terrific, uh, terrific insight to share with these students. Um, the second was that, um, that, that it's, there's a lot of old school ideas and, 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 and Things I heard you talk about things like uh, you know, economies of scale and experience in production of, of, of photovolta photovoltaic um, uh, production. Uh, these are these are old school ideas that are being applied to new whole new categories of products, and it's sort of reassuring to me because I grew up, you know, thinking about economies of scale and mass sort of old school production. It's nice to see that they still apply here. The, the third thing that I'll remember. Uh, very clearly is is you talking about milestone and thesis based investing, um, and it's probably one of the most interesting angles to clean tech because uh, again I, I I don't know your name but I believe you talked about it was a tr brilliant point uh, long time horizons and uncertain paybacks and large capital commitments the best way to mitigate those in this sort of new sector is to think about. Um, is to think about your funding to the next scientific milestone or your funding to the next meaningful milestone and you're funding only those things that fit your thesis. You're not sort of just shopping for ideas. I think those are very powerful concepts. Probably the thing though that I, I, would, I, would, uh, I would just repeat for the students is this idea of long waves. Um, there is no substitute for having the wind at your back not blowing in your face. And um, you can work just as hard in two completely unrelated industries. And when the wind is at your back, you'll have a lot more fun, you'll have a lot more opportunity, and you'll probably be a lot more successful than if it's barreling in your face. So I thought that was a terrific one. And thank you very much for coming today. Sure.